You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. So if you've been here the last few weeks, it probably will be no surprise to you at all that we turn to the book of Ecclesiastes together. So let's go to that great Old Testament book. It's two books to the right of the book of Psalms, if that helps you to find it today. I hope you have a copy of God's Word with you, or at least your device with you, that we might study God's Word together today. We're going to see four things in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, and then we're going to see two big ideas of chapter 2 in the book of Ecclesiastes. So let's get there together. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is where we'll start. Read a few verses, we'll stop, get a few good truths from this passage today. I'm glad that you're here. This is Solomon who is writing this, king of Israel. He's the king in Jerusalem. He's the son of King David. He's going to reign for 40 years. More than likely, he's at the end of his life, kind of reflecting back on where value can be found, what's really important in life. It's a good, good word for all of us here today, especially if you're of a younger generation. This is an older man telling us where life can be found, where truth can be found, what is true about life. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, I said in my heart, so this is Solomon talking to himself, reflecting to himself, I said in my heart, come now, talking to his heart, and I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also a vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. I said of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, but my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven. During these few short days, we all know that we have of their life. Here's the first thing. If you're a note taker, we've got four things for you today. Again, in this passage, here's number one. Here's an empty king. So he tries laughter and wine. I'm, I'm, I'm empty, there's nothing happening in my life, and so I'm going to try laughter. I'm going to see if I can find some, some meaning in life and comedy. I'm going to see if there's some meaning in life and, and drinking and wine and alcohol. You see, the problem with the life constantly filled with laughter, or constantly filled with wine, is there's no room for grief. There's no room for lamenting. There, there's no room for a cancer report. There's no room for a paralysis by a young man or of a young man because of an accident. There's, there's no room for a heavy conversation. If you're just trying to constantly fill your life with laughter and, and with wine, if, if life is only laughter and wine, you've missed out on some of the most significant portions of life. If you're always intoxicated on humor or always intoxicated on fermented grapes or fermented barley, then you kind of miss out on grief and loss and sadness and quiet remembrance and those things they prove that we are human grief proves that we're human and it's just hard to grieve when you're buzzed it's hard to lament when you're medicated so here's an empty king he's going to try everything to, to fill this void in his life so he tries comedy he tries laughter he tries wine verse 1 again says I said in my heart so this is Solomon speaking to himself come now I'm going to test you another word there I'm going to, I'm going to tempt you I'm going to tempt your, my own heart with, with pleasure so he tells his heart hey heart just go enjoy yourself our wealth in America makes it so easy to make a God out of comfort out of pleasure. Here's a very wealthy king. He could buy anything that he wanted and he told himself, I'm going to test myself. I'm going to tempt my own heart with pleasure just to go and enjoy everything. 
but he was still empty. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil that had considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I'd expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, a striving after wind, a chasing after wind, and there was nothing to be gained, to be accomplished under the sun. So secondly, here's an empty king. So he tries accomplishments and success. Certainly that would fill the void. It's kind of what we say to ourselves, at least here in the West. If I can just do more things, accomplish more things, have more successes, maybe that will kind of fill the, the, the emptiness in my life. So Solomon says he did everything a successful person is supposed to do. He built things. He achieved things. In fact, all that you could ever want 13 times in those eight verses we just read, he uses the personal pronoun I. I just want you to see some of it, kind of interesting. In in verse 4, I made great works. Verse 4, I built houses. Verse 4, I planted vineyards. Verse 5, I made myself gardens and and parks. Verse 6, I made myself pools. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves. Verse 7, I also had great possessions of herds and flocks. Verse 8, I gathered for myself silver and gold. Verse 8, I got singers. Verse 9, so I became great. Low self-esteem wasn't a struggle for for Solomon. I became great. He has accomplishments and and pleasure and music and houses and gardens and and pools and parks and and slaves. We learned back in 1 Kings chapter 9 that these slaves were Amorites and Hittites that that Solomon had won in battle as a conquest for battle. He had livestock and silver and gold and vineyards. Yet he lands at the same landing place. Verse, Verse 11 I considered all that I had done, all that my hands had accomplished, all the toil and all the energy I'd expended and in doing so. And behold, it was all vanity. It was all, it was all vapor, all a morning mist. It was all nothingness. It was all meaninglessness. I was just chasing after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there was more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, here he is thinking to himself again, "What, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. 
So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity, all is just this striving after wind. I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. And just for you to know in history, it was a fool that came after him. Yet he will be master of all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair, up to depression, over the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not work for it, did not toil for it. And this also is vanity. It's a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all of his days are full of sorrow and his works is a vexation or, or a grief. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Third thing we see in this passage. Here's an empty king. So he tries wisdom and good work ethic. If I could just be smarter, if I could just work harder, if I could just get up earlier in the morning and work later into the night, if I could just work so hard and so wisely. Now, there are a few positives here in, in the passage we just read, and I, I better point them out to you because everything else is hopelessly bleak in this chapter. So let me point out at least a few of the positives. Verse 13, wisdom is better than foolishness, so that's a good check mark there. Verse 13, light is better than darkness, there's another good check mark. Verse 14, let's look at verse 14 again. Interesting little phrase here. Uh, the wise person has his eyes in his head. <laughs> Not sure a lot of the places where those eyes could go, but it's really an expression here that means that a wise person lives his life with his eyes wide open. Like he is not naive. He understands the, the workings of the world around him. But then Solomon goes right back to this pessimistic reality that he talks about so often using that phrase under the sun. He used it five times in that passage we just read. Verse 17, under the sun. Verse 18, under the sun. Verse 19, under the sun. Verse 20, under the sun. Verse 22, under the sun. And remember, under the sun means a disconnection from God. Here, here is a life that is being lived that is disassociated from God, separated from God. The, the, the expression means that God lived above the sun. But men in their daily living, their daily thinking, their earthly thinking, their mundane living was underneath the sun. It was the separation. So he, he's talking about how grievous his life is under the sun, disconnected from God, not in relationship with God. Verse 16, I think, is interesting also. If your Bible's still open, I hope it is. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. In other words, those who are the, the wisest in the world and those who are the foolish, most foolish in the world, they will both die and no one will remember them. Think about it. You work hard. You get up early in the morning. You, you go to your job begin to kind of move up, maybe slowly, but moving up the ladder, moving up the corporate ladder. Start making a little bit more income in five years than maybe you did five years back. Begin to save a little bit, put a little money back in, in retirement or maybe money in a pension, money in savings. Maybe you even put some money in the stock market and begin to see a little bit, you know, your, your wealth begins to grow then begins to grow some more, then it, then it grows some more, but you're growing old just as your wealth is growing old. And then you die. And people go to your funeral, and they cry. 
then they go eat fried chicken afterwards. And they decide how they're going to spend all this money that you've been working so hard for all these years. I mean, the circle of life is not as cheery as the Lion King made it out to be. Like you just, you, you grow up, you make money and you die. Then people spend the money that, that you worked so hard for, for all those years, 40, 50, 60 years perhaps in the labor market. This is what Solomon is saying here. You, you try a good work ethic. You, you try a wisdom, but there's still this emptiness. In fact, he says here that he hates two things. Verse 17, I hate life. Verse 18, I hate work. He hates it. It's the Hebrew word sani, hates, and it means a sworn enemy, a despicable sworn enemy. So he is saying right here, I have made life my enemy. I have made work my enemy. Verse 22, verse 23, look at that again. What has a man for all the toil, all the work, all the striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? Here's kind of what you get for it. For all of his days are just full of sorrow. And his work is a grief, is a vexation. Even in the night, your mind never slows down. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. In other words, the more things you have, the more sorrow you have. Why is it that the more things you have, the more sorrow you have? Because the more you have, the more you have to take care of. And the more you have, the more you have to worry about. The more things you have, the less sleep you actually get, is what the scripture is saying. I think that's true. Verse 24. There is nothing better, and this is actually the happy part of Ecclesiastes 2. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of of God. The first time we hear about God in the book of Ecclesiastes. For apart from God, apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. He lands again. This is vanity. It's just a chasing after the wind, just a striving after the wind. Here's the fourth thing we see in this passage. Here's an empty king who finally sees joy in connection with God. He finally begins to turn just a little bit. In fact, you, you don't hear anything about joy in the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes until you come to this passage right here. And you really see it three different times. You see it in the middle or toward the end of verse 24, enjoyment. You see it in verse 25, Enjoyment you see in verse 26, joy. So what, what Solomon is saying right here is we find nothing in our finite lives that can give us infinite peace. We find nothing in our short-term life that will give us long-term joy. So we finally get this little conclusion right here that's actually pretty good. It's a great conclusion. We must go outside of ourselves to find true meaning in life. We're going to have to step outside of ourselves to find true meaning in life. Step outside of our work ethic, our wisdom, our accomplishments, our success, our laughter, our wine, our, our dailiness. Dailiness. He comes to this place where he says, I'm going to have to find life outside of myself. Because man, just living life... Women just living life under the sun, disconnected from God. It always leads to this life that's just futile and full of despair and full of death. If you're going to find anything good, friends, it's going to have to come from the hand of God. This 
Highland is the definition of grace. To experience this type of grace, we're going to have to turn to God. We're going to have to be connected to God. And the only way we can be connected to God is through Jesus Christ. Walking with Jesus, knowing Jesus is the only hope we have. Those are four things we see in the passage. Let's see two things, two big ideas of chapter two. Here's, here's the two big ideas. Here it is. We spend our lives worried that what we hate will destroy us. We'll spend a lot of our lives, a lot of our energy, a lot of our time so worried about the things that we hate. We're afraid that those things that we hate are actually going to end up destroying us. And so we fear something that we despise. We despise those things because we fear those things. Let me give you some ideas. Cancer, a thief, betrayal, loss, violence, stress, sickness, a storm. We spend our lives worried about those things that we hate because we're afraid that those things are going to destroy us. But but here's actually the truth. It is what we love that is more likely to ruin us. The things that we voluntarily give ourselves to, such as comfort, or food, or alcohol, or sex, or power, or money, or work, or pleasure. Those things that we love, we see here in this passage, are actually the things that will probably end up ruining us. Many of those things ruin us, even though we go to those things for satisfaction. That's the big idea of chapter 2. This this king here, Solomon, he ruled with complete authority. No one in his kingdom was going to dare tell him no, so he lacked no resource at all. So you imagine for just a moment, can you imagine for just a moment that you had unlimited access to all of your desires? Unlimited access to anything you wanted. Anything, anyone, at any time, without any restrictions. That's Solomon. And it led to depression. And it led to meaninglessness. It led to nothingness. It was his constant appetite and lust for things that he loved that led him to ruin. Here's the punch list what Solomon tried to pursue to find some meaning in in life. This is what he was pursuing to find some significance in his life. We saw earlier comedic laughter. If he could just laugh all the time, maybe that would bring some meaning to his life. Um, Alcohol, drunk in in, in gold mugs only. Did you know that he only drank out of of gold mugs? 1 Kings uh, chapter 4 says that silver was beneath him. So all of his alcohol, he, he drank only in pure gold mugs. He had incredible real estate with massive palaces and these private gardens. We read about some of that just then. He had a personal staff estimated at 20,000 servants. 20,000 people who were there to to serve his every whim. You have the equivalent we see in the Old Testament of of a private zoo that Solomon had with all these exotic animals from all over the world. He had a ranch of 12,000 horses and 1,400 chariots. We see that in 1 Kings chapter 4. Those chariots and those horses came from Egypt. So much wealth, some of you economic majors will appreciate this, he had so much wealth that silver became worthless in the kingdom. A personal concert with his favorite singers, his favorite artists, intimacy with one of a thousand wives or concubines. Rock star fame, the highest IQ, the greatest insight of anyone who has ever lived in the world outside of Jesus, and the power to do basically anything he wanted. Furthermore, his palace... He enjoyed sitting on this huge throne that was decorated with with gold and ivory. 
First Kings 10 said he had 14 hand-carved lions around his throne. First Kings 9 and 10 say that he had 500 custom-made hammered gold shields that surrounded his throne room. I mean, Zuckerberg and Jay-Z and Bezos would, would drool over a crib like this. It was beautiful. It was ornate. It was elaborate. Uh, Elon Musk would be green with envy to, to see a place like this. The conclusion? I mean, you can have a full refrigerator. You can have a full house. You can have a full closet. You can have a full bank account, a full social life, a full mind, a full stomach. You can have a full liquor cabinet, a full bed, a full resume, and still have an empty soul. Let me land with a mathematic equation. For those of y'all who love math, I am not one of you. But here it is. Everything minus God is nothing. You can have everything in the world. You can have every desire that you've ever wanted. You can have more money than, than you know what to do with. Your pantry can be filled with all kinds of options for lunch and dinner tonight. Your driveway can have new cars every couple of years. You can have everything that the American dream says that you want. But you take God out of that equation, and you have nothing. This is Solomon's equation. I mean, he had everything going for him, everything he could want. But he had taken God out of his life, a disconnection from God, and he was living this life of vanity. He was depressed. He was in despair. Did you read it earlier? I hate life. But here's the positive equation. Nothing plus God is everything. I mean, you can have very, very little in life. You can have very, very little in your bank account. And I know I'm talking to a lot of college students here. You have very, very little in your bank accounts. I mean, you can barely have enough clothes to, to, to fill even a, a few yards, a few feet of, of closet space. I mean, your car may have barely made it to church today. And you may not be trading that in for another three years. You may be making minimum wage and, and with, with no moving up the ladder anywhere on the horizon. You may have barely enough food in your cupboard to maybe eat lunch and a little dinner tonight. But if you have God, you have everything for this life and the life to come. That statement wrecks the American dream that says if you'll just get more things. We have so much stuff here. I had a friend from Honduras, from Tegucigalpa, that flew in when he was a freshman in college and never been to America before. Picked him up from DFW Airport. This guy lived outside of Tegucigalpa, Honduras in a pretty small village. I had been to his house before. There, the, his floor was dirt. He got a full ride scholarship to Dallas Baptist University. I picked him up from the airport and just driving him from DFW Airport to DBU, about a 16, 17 minute drive, I was embarrassed when he was asking questions like, what's this Walmart place? Like, well, for some reason we call it Walmart, I know it's spelled incorrectly, but it's, it's not Walmart, it's, it's Walmart, and it's anything you could ever want with happy faces on the price tags back then, I mean, just anything you wanted. And the most embarrassed I was was, was 
moving straight toward DBU, and he pointed to an orange and white building. And he said, what's that? I was like, oh, that's, that's our storage. We have so much stuff in our house that we have to buy storage closets and storage spaces to put our extra things into storage. You can have everything. But if you don't have God through Christ Jesus, you have nothing. And it can feel like you have nothing. But if you know God through the Son, Jesus Christ, oh, you have everything. You are rich. Solomon couldn't experience joy and satisfaction because his heart remained so sinful. It was so bent towards sin and toward temptations and and the highs of his life, the glories of his life eventually faded away. But he painfully learns right here at the end of chapter two that joy is a gracious gift from God that comes from being in his presence and not just having things. There is hope in Ecclesiastes. But it only comes by knowing the one who is above the sun, the one who is above the heavens. The only way we can be connected and known by God is by believing on his son, Jesus Christ, and having a relationship with Jesus and Jesus alone. This is the only hope we have. Christ is our only hope. Would you stand with me, please? Let's pray together. Jesus, our hearts and our eyes are set on you. There is no hope in the things we have. There is no hope in our possessions. There is no hope in greater income next year. There is no hope in a bigger house or a newer car or more fashionable clothes. There is no hope in more friends, more things, more success, more achievement. Jesus, our only hope is you. Thank you, God, that you have made a way for us to have joy and life that is satisfying by a God who knows us and loves us through his son, Jesus. That's our hope. And we pray in that hope and we sing about that hope together. Amen.